what's up? This is Evan. And Michael. And welcome to Dungeon Talk episode 8. 8 D&D Next. going to be all about D&D Next. So last night we ran a marathon session that, I don't know, went like 8 hours. Between both games, probably 8 actual playing. So we stopped for dinner kind of in the middle. So hats off to you because you did an awesome job of, we started... That's we me patting myself on the back. We started our, we started the game with playing our normal 3.5 game. We played that for about two or three hours, and then you transitioned into the D and D next game by giving us new characters, and it took it was a different storyline that took place in the same world that we were playing in, and those stories are going to come together in the future, kind of like a movie where at the beginning. You, you kind of see, see the other side. You see these characters, and you see a kind of a storyline starting to happen with them, and then you see these. Other, it goes to these other characters that you don't know at this time have anything to do right. with. So, after the following like eight hours, seven, six hours, however long we played, was the D and D next game. It was really awesome. Thank you. Um, how do you how do you want to start it? Well, we've said on several podcasts in a row, almost every one of them, I think, that we want to talk about D and D next. It just happened that when we decided to launch our website and start doing the podcast was right around the same time that D&D Next was announced and some of the play and test material was being brought about. So it's very topical for us. And I kind of want to, since we're, if this is going to be the episode where we just lay it out on the table, everything that's, that's happened. So even though we had this great session last night, I kind of want to go back from the beginning and just do the whole thing right, so we can say we've we've D and D next out. So the first experience that you and I had with D and D next was actually at a local game shop that hosted a when the very first playtest material came out. We went to that game store and we both sat in as players on the, the on the the first rollout of of the rules. Now I had played. You know, if you've listened to this, if you're listening to the podcast now, you probably are already familiar with our varying amount of experience around D&D. So I've played games longer than you have as far as, you know, back playing in high school, junior high, college. So playing a theater of the mind style game, it's not something I've done recently, but it's something I am familiar with, where for you, that was the first time you've ever played D&D without a battle map, without miniatures, at without the, the, comic, at shop, the yeah. comic shop. And we both kind of agreed that the DM that ran that session wasn't the best in the world. Now, I, I think that the shop owns some of that because I don't think it was organized very well in that everybody who wanted to play showed up. They divided us into tables, and then they basically said, hey, who, who's willing to DM at each table? So the guy who DM'd didn't come there prepared to DM. He, you know, he came there just as a participant like us, and I'll, hats off to him. He put his hand up and said, I'll do it. No preparation, barely knew the rules, just like anybody else. But having said that, there were some things that he did or didn't do that – I think took away from some of our enjoyment, but even though it wasn't the best environment and it wasn't the best ran game, you and I both had some very positive things to say about that. And I wanted to start with you because that was your first ever theater of the mind experience. So what did you think of that first play test? When I left the game and it was, it didn't even really happen during the game. It was more when the game was over and when the game was over, there was something different in my mind than there normally was when I finished a D&D game. I, when I, like, let's say when I finished a D&D game at your house and I would think back to what had happened that day, I would get images in my head of the battles that took place on your tabletop. So I would get a picture of the tabletop where you had drawn and the miniatures and stuff like that. I didn't have any of that. What I had in my head was kind of this film reel as if I had just gotten done watching a movie. There was no miniatures on the table. There was no maps. Um, so e all the characters that were involved in the story were all creations of my imagination. They were how I thought they looked. Uh, we were fighting in the snow. The one encounter that I was in was we were in the snow, and then we went into a cave, and we killed some monsters inside the cave. And then outside... When we were in the snow, we were fighting a giant or just a, or a bit, some kind of bigger creature. It was an ogre. That whole fight was like a film reel to me. And when I was thinking about it afterwards, I was so much happier with that experience. I was so much happier with 
It, it was just in, in in a way that I can't really describe. It was more rewarding, and I don't really like to say why it was more rewarding. I don't really know, but it was just a cooler experience because it was more real to me. I mean, yeah. as real as it could be, playing a you're playing a fantasy game. game. I, I would equate that the word I would use is immersion. That you were more immersed into the story, you were more invested into what was going on. In some cases, probably because you had to be, because you couldn't keep up otherwise. This is something we've discussed on previous podcasts that that does happen around every table, where you'll have somebody on their phone or on their iPad, or maybe they have a cell phone call, and you know life happens. I get we're playing a game. It's not like I'm upset when that happens, but you'll see someone who'll look up, look at the battle map, and go. Uh, okay, I'm going to do this, this, and this. And they haven't been paying attention since it was their turn last. Or they're not paying attention until the DM looks at the initiative list and, and sees says, that they're next. And says, Eric, it's your turn. And then their ears perk up and they go, oh. And then so then, then they start looking at the map and then they look down and they're like, okay, move here, do this. Right. They weren't paying attention until you, that point. You really can't do that in a theater of the mind game because you will have no idea what's going on. I guess you could do that. But it would get even more annoying even quicker because the DM's going to have to constantly re-explain, no, this happened then, and then this happened, and now it's your turn. Right, because the DM can't just point to the table in front of him and say, he's here, you're here. Right. He has to repaint the whole scene and situation. And I, I think that's one of the things that, ha- since you had not done that before, really stuck out in your mind. My most memorable moment in that particular game was I played a wizard. And there was the battle with the ogre that you're talking about, and there was a lot of snow on the ground. And I don't know if that was just a a thing that the DM put in. I don't know if that was actually in the adventure that it says there's a lot of snow. But he had described it as there was quite a heavy snowfall. So when the ogre came out from the other cave, because I remember the way that the battle worked, is we attacked some kobolds, I believe, or goblins. And they ran through a little side passage and sort of woke up the ogre, who's like their bully bodyguard protector type, type guy. So he kind of came out of a different and sort of came from behind is I dove into the snow and hid. Like that was my first action when the ogre came out was to hide. And then the next round, there were some people that fought it. The next round, other people came out of the cave. They realized what was going on. And I think three, four, maybe even five rounds in a row, all I did was hide in the snow, buried so that I couldn't be seen because I didn't want to get smashed in the head by the ogre. And I had a lot of fun doing that. And then... What did you do after those rounds? Did you do anything? Well, when I thought that the ogre was about to die, I jumped out that last round and cast magic missile because I really wanted to take credit for the kill. Yeah. But I didn't do quite enough damage. And then the very next turn, another of our, the PCs actually got the blow. But And I've said this time and time again. Combat for me is just part of the game. It's not the end-all, be-all. So the fact that my character did not participate in four, maybe five rounds of combat in a row did not take away from my enjoyment of the game whatsoever. You were just I was happier to be more immersed in what was going on. Right. I really think if we were playing a, a different game that had the grid and the miniatures, I would have felt more pressure to contribute to the battle. And, you know, realistically, the other PCs could have got upset that I wasn't helping. But to me, that should be a role-playing experience that where they in character say, why did you do that? Rather than player to player saying, we need your damage. We need your aggro or we're not going to be able to complete this quest. Like that to me those are separate things and and that was my most memorable takeaway. That's another thing that I hadn't really thought about before was if you have four people sitting around, if you have four players sitting around a table and combat is happening, when one person stops and starts thinking for a few seconds, uh all the other players start saying throwing out Ideas. attacks or abilities that that person has and says Use magic missile or use this and this uh, because the only thing that you're expected to do is move and attack, yeah. move and attack each turn. And there doesn't really when 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 we're using the board and we're using the grid, you don't really think about the opportunity to do other things that just add to the story. Right. Not necessarily just move a few squares and attack. So. When we were playing, especially like last night, because that's still really fresh in my head, um, when Rob would sit and think about what he was doing, or when I would sit and think about what I was going to do, the other people wouldn't jump in and say, you should do this. They were more waiting to see what my char- 
character was going to do in the scene. Right. Was he going to jump up and grab a hold of a fan and swing across the room? Was he going, you know, the first thing I did in when our combat started, I think was a really unexpected thing because you, you said that earlier. But then also thinking back when I ran out the bed, because when our combat started, I was in a room and the the most of the fight was taking place outside on the street. And instead of running out the front door to the fight, I grabbed the shopkeeper and ran out the back. And now thinking back, Nico was sitting on my left. And I remember Nico kind of going like this because I ran out the back and he was probably thinking, why didn't you come join the the battle? Right. So, um, yeah, like I wasn't, if I would have been looking at the board, if I would have been looking at the grid, you're exactly right. I probably would have been, counting squares, squares from where my piece was to where the battle was and and been thinking okay i i can get there this turn then i can attack or i can't get there i never even thought about that the first thing i thought of was what would my character do right. in this situation and, and when i asked you about that earlier as we were setting up for the podcast you even said well you know i still was acting tactically because i was moving to get into a flanking position mm-hmm. you were playing a rogue and you know you wanted to do a backstab but then I said, but you didn't have to take the shopkeeper with you. You you very easily could have just moved to flanking. But because you were in that game in your head, you saw yourself protecting the shopkeeper as well. And protecting is an interesting word because in this game, you guys were actually playing villains. You're playing like mobsters, basically. So I was more looking at him as like, he's an asset to our business. Right. I'm protecting an asset. That's what he pays for. He pays right. for protection. And you were offering that. But again, I think even if you were playing uh three, five and you still wanted to do the type of game we did last night, I don't know that many people would have thought to protect the shopkeeper as much as just going out and getting the back alley. Now I, I do want to say there's, if there's people listening to this, which hopefully there are, I'm sure there's at least a dozen people saying that's stupid. I play three, five with a grid and we don't do that. We're very immersed. Apparently there's hundreds of people listen to it. <laughs> I think it's, still... I think it's my mom. She if just moves... you listen to this, will you please just like hit the period in the comment or just like mash your fist down on the keyboard. So there's just a blurb of letters in the comments and then hit submit just so we know that there's is actually, true yeah because we're getting all these hits on our uh or this uh, statistical hits on our and downloads on our website but we don't have any proof to show them. right so we're not sure if it's accurate or not yeah anyways but anyway i'm sure that there are groups out there that play a 3.5 very tactical version of the game but they also are very immersive and, and i would probably like to play in that type of game i'm sure there i'm sure that the, but i'm there those people they're probably played a real long time they've probably made a conscious effort and discussing it like this is how we want our group we want our group to be that to have a tactical miniatures game but if you're going to sit down at the table with us we want you to be immersed in role playing the story so yeah so i'm not saying it's like like D next it creates us an environment that only D next creates that's absolutely not true and not necessarily any better or any worse but for us in the product of the environment that we're in it was a refreshing take on the game, and it was an enjoyable experience, despite some of the ways that it happened. Uh, after that, you didn't have a lot of uh, involvement in next. I had signed up for the playtest materials, and even though I wasn't able to do as many playtests as I liked, I was constantly getting the new and updated rules uh, because of the website and the Twitter feed that we have. I've, I've kind of had conversations with other people that are part of the playtest, that kind of thing. Uh, so it, finally, we got to have a second playtest, and... Because of our experience at the game shop, I wanted to host it at, at my house and have my regular group play. And at the last minute, two people had to back out. So it ended up just being me as the DM and then you and Nico as the players. And we, we were redoing the same exact scene. It was the Caves of Chaos. And Nico decided to play a rogue and you decided to play a wizard. And you really didn't like that game at all. So why not? Because I'm a terrible DM. No, um, I was frustrated the whole game by Nico's character. Yes, and I didn't let my I didn't I didn't let myself get into my character or into my role playing um, because the whole time I was I was just uh, I was new to the game. Um, I was kind of being the leader where I was employing somebody else. I was paying him to come along and he was just this guy who was at every chance he would get, he would just tell me how 
I'll, I'll walk away right now. I don't care. You yeah, know. Or he was adding to the bill. Like every time he did something, yeah. he was like, that's two more gold you owe me. That's and two I'm more not gold an experienced role player. So I was just getting very frustrated and like, and just thinking to myself, well, leave. You're right. I, I don't care. Go. Right. In my, in my head. So um, me- mechanically wise, there wasn't a whole lot of valuable lessons learned in that. And, you know, we, you and I have discussed that again. Probably you should have just let it go for a one shot. Yeah, it wasn't anything that had to do with the mechanics or D and D next right. or anything like that. Why, of His why role playing like decisions it. made you feel constrained about yours, which is a topic we've kind of hit on this podcast a little bit, but not truly in depth. And that kind of made the experience not as much fun for you, but the, the game itself, the mechanics really had no positive or negative impact on right. that. Uh, so, and then that was pretty much it. We haven't actually had a chance to do a play test for quite a while. And I, again, I've said this on other podcasts that I want to take our entire campaign into the D and D next play test and just do it like an ongoing thing. But because of the character classes that you guys were playing, it, it, it would be very difficult to do 75% of the character classes. We would have to make up our own versions, which really probably wouldn't do a good test. So I've refrained from doing that. And then I was listening to another podcast. I, I've mentioned this one before. It's Critical Hit, uh, the major spoiler crew pod, D&D podcast. I think they, they play 4th Edition, and the more I listen to it, the more I kind of grow not to like 4th Edition, even though I do like it. But listening to them play, it's kind of continues to bring out the things I don't like. But the DM is fantastic. He's a, he's a remarkable DM, how quick he is and able to keep the story going. And I have liberally stole from his podcast in my games. And one of the things that he had done in that, and I'm, I'm sure other people have done it, but I had never, uh, was have them do like I did in my playtest. He'd had his characters play basically NPCs in the same campaign, the same world, and then later they kind of came back together and, and met. And that's what sparked my idea to do that is, okay, we're going to play D&D next, but it's going to stay in the same world that I'm already running, and these are going to be two stories that kind of converge together. And I'm going to use that as a way to tell a side of my story that you're, it would be very difficult for them to get to that information without me just telling you, you know, Mr. Exposition and tell you a whole bunch of stuff that really isn't a fun game. So it kind of worked out. It was a great marriage. I had a lot of fun developing the ideas. But having said that, it still was a little bit weird. The game that I'm running right now, there is almost no magic in the entire world. There's uh, very little divine magic in the world. So we did not play with a cleric. We did not play with a wizard. And those are two of the big changes about D&D Next compared to the other editions. So we still didn't really get to experience that or, or, to, or to test it. So the way we ended up doing it is we had two rogues with different specialties and backgrounds. And then we had a fighter. And those are the only three characters that played in the D&D Next play test. But it was all theater of the mind. And... Even mechanically, wasn't a whole like we didn't really get into a whole lot of the meat of D and D next. Advantage disadvantage didn't come up a whole lot, though we've already incorporated some of that into my other game already. the The ability to move, attack, and move is something we've already adopted into our three point five game, so that really wasn't a big change. So mechanically, the only thing that was really covered was the combat expertise dice that Nico, as the fighter, got to do, and he really liked it. He had a whole lot of fun with that. We after the after the game, we kind of had like a half hour debrief where we just discussed well, explain it. Explain the combat expertise because I I don't know. Didn't really it see how it worked. So that's kind of the new mechanic for the fighter to make them a little bit more interesting, a little bit more diverse. Is that when you when you play a fighter based on your level, you get what's called expertise dice, and it starts off like as a D six. I think Nico because he was playing a fourth level fighter got a D eight, and each round at the beginning of your turn, that die re- refreshes itself. So if you've spent it on your last turn, it comes back and you can spend it again. And you have all these different ways that you can use that die each turn. And you can use it for extra damage. So you could just add a D8 to every attack that you do and do an additional 1D8 damage. You can use it as a defensive measure and hold on to it. And when you're attacked, you can roll it to subtract the damage that you're done as if you're using your weapon to block theirs or kind of dodge out of the way. And there's also special combat maneuvers that you could use. Like you just basically spend it. Okay, here's my die. I no longer have it, but I can do a jab, which is a, a, a attack that has a special uh, effect. You could do a tripping attack. You could do a cleave attack. Uh, there's one called a glancing blow. So if you miss, but you're basically close to hitting, you can roll that D8 and do that as damage, saying, I missed, but I still kind of hit. 
So there's just every round you have several options and the higher level you are, the different types of backgrounds or specialties you choose determines which of those combat maneuvers you have access to as you level. And he really liked it in play style. Theoretically, having read the rules, I thought it was fantastic. So I was a big fan of that. But that's probably the only big mechanical difference that happened in the game. But I want to talk about, you talked, or you were talking earlier about the, just the character sheet itself made a difference in how you played the game. So what did you mean by that? Well, the character sheet, to me, kind of um, embodies what a lot of what D&D Next is doing, which is trying to simplify things with um, in respect to like the character creation and, and to make it easier. Um, and because of that, it somehow it made it all more fun and playable to me because I was less immersed in my character sheet all the time. My character sheet just became um, a piece of paper that sat off to the side and I just needed to refer to it every once in a while to look to look at a number or something like this. It wasn't who I was. Like, the character sheet wasn't who I was. It wasn't my character. Whereas in the other game, the 3.5 game, I see my character as all the stats and spells that are listed on this page. That's what I... That's how... That's kind of what... Uh, that's, it's... It's... For example, okay, in combat... When I'm when I'm playing my Dusk Blade, his name is Samson. When I think, what would Samson do here? I'm kind of, I'm kind of looking at the spells and the movement on the board and thinking, which of these spells would he do, and where would he move on the board? So my focus for my options are zoned to the grid and to the character sheet, whereas the character sheet in D&D Next is so simplified, it just sits off to the side. And when I think about, okay, what would my character do? I don't think to look at my sheet. I don't think to see what's on there that I can do. I just, I am, I'm playing my character. I'm, I'm being him and I'm just, I'm looking, I'm thinking about what the other players have done. I'm thinking about the scene in my head. And because I'm picturing the scene in my head. I'm picturing the shop that we were in. There may, maybe there was books everywhere. Maybe there was a ceiling fan hanging there. Maybe there were vases. Maybe there were oil lamps with oil in them. I could have asked you, was there, or, you know, what improvised things are there here that I can do? I was picturing what it was like outside. I was picturing what it was like across the street. And when I'm, when I have all those images in my head, thing options and abilities for things to do start to come to me like the i like the idea to look for a back door door to run out the back there's probably a back alleyway and i'll be able to go around i'll be able to hide him and go around and sneak around whereas with samson when i think about what i'm going to do i just look at the squares i'm counting squares and i look at the character sheet for spells so the fact that the character sheet is so simple makes me more involved in the immer the immersion like you were saying before okay and well one of the things we did because we were playing what was basically going to be a one shot and we had even though we had a whole saturday game which we were all excited to play i didn't want to take an hour of that to create characters as well as since i was putting you into my own world already i went ahead and created characters for everyone i came with a sheet that had a kind of a background sort of the things that had happened most recently or the most important to you, what was going on, why you were doing what you were doing. But I still allowed you to have a lot of freedom in choosing how you presented those those facts at the game table. So you didn't really get to see how D&D Next characters were created. And again, I, you know, this again, the point of the podcast, the point of our website isn't D&D Next, yay, but there's a lot of things that they're doing that I personally find very good and I like and I want to see them continue. And the character creation is one of them. So the way it works is you pick your, basically your race first. And right now they have the kind of the core races, you know, dwarf, elf, halfling, and human. And then there's some sub races, which is a hearkening back to first edition and second edition where you have like high elves and wood elves and you have uh, mountain dwarves and underground dwarves and you have like 
um, the two halflings. One's like a light foot, and the other one I can't exactly remember what it's called. But you have these sort of sub races, so you can you could have two halflings that are like basically from different parts of the country, and so they're still even though they're both halflings, they're not the same exact type of halfling. And then you pick your class, and right now again they have the pretty much the basic classes: you have wizard, cleric, uh, fighter, and rogue. And they just recently came out with two additional arcane spellcasters, the warlock and the sorcerer. Then you pick your background. Was the rogue that you gave me a pre-build, like those, those, the things that he was trained in, or did you pick those? I created one for you based on the, the background of your character being the wasteland outside the city. I, picked, I made up one called Survivor. Everything else was out of the character uh, creation guidelines. And, and I basically just kind of found one that was similar and twisted it just a little bit to make sense. So it was very close to what it would have been otherwise. So you pick your class, excuse me, then you pick your background, and your background is sort of like what you did outside of being an adventurer or what you did beforehand. So for you, I picked like a thief. Scavenger. Scavenger. Sorry, that's the thing that I made up, that you were a scavenger. So you spent time in the wasteland, which is like this nuclear fallout desert, and you'd look for artifacts, that kind of thing. Rob's, for example, he was a bounty hunter, was his background. That's from the character creation guidelines. So he's legally allowed to hunt down criminals. He, it, it gave him contacts within both the police organization as well as the underworld organization so that he can follow up on people and find people. And then you have your specialty, which is sort of how you do what you do. So, for example, you were a, a rogue that was a scavenger, but as a rogue, your kind of specialty was that you were the more sneaky type of rogue. You had a better ability to hide. You also had a better ability to kind of see in the dark, which is called night vision. But see, I didn't – I felt like I was pl- playing a ranger. Really? I felt like I was playing a ranger who just had a sneak attack skill because, um, like, his his abilities – he was a, he was a scavenger, a survivor, probably well-trained in the outdoors – and his abilities were survival, spot, and, and search, search, which is a that's a ranger to me. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I, I was kind of the whole which di- again didn't hurt. But okay, but that's kind of a good example because 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 I don't care so much about the character sheet. It, it didn't, didn't take away from the it game. Didn't, for it didn't me. change how you. I played. wasn't. Yeah, it didn't change how I played. I was like. Well, I, I I was still convinced that I could play this character however I wanted. Well, and the thing that I wanted to get to is that you played a rogue and Rob played a rogue, but you were very different characters, mm-hmm. not only just in personality, but what you were doing and how you were doing it. Pretty much you used a dagger the entire time. I don't think you made any attacks that were not with your dagger Mm-mm. where Rob used his bow. I mean, he, he had the specialty of archer, which makes sense. But what I like about that is that you can you could have a party of four rogues. So you have like a halfling rogue, a human rogue, an elf rogue, and a dwarf rogue. And then you could have different backgrounds and different specialties and sort of play like a thieves guild, sort of similar to what I was doing there. And you would all feel like you were different characters. It wouldn't be the exact same. And, and I love that approach. Yeah. Now, I recently read an article. Uh, I believe it was by Dave the Game Chalker. He's one of the guys that I follow on Twitter where he was kind of uh, laying out the idea that he thought that having race, class, background, specialty was a little too much. It was a little bit overboard. And they say in the, in the character creation guidelines that backgrounds and specialties are optional. You, you could easily play without them. But one of the things he commented on is that it kind of gets to a point of silliness where you say, well, I'm a, I'm a halfling rogue, thief, skulker rogue. You know, because if you kind of lay out your backgrounds and specialties and, and, and your uh, – traits it sort of is a redundancy and it just sounds weird like if someone asks you at the table what are you playing i'm a rogue thief lurker rogue thief something it does sound kind of silly but my counter argument that would be is you only talk about that above game if you actually were in the game and someone said what do you do you wouldn't say i'm a fourth level cleric or a fourth level rogue you'd say i'm just a badass motherfucker don't worry about it Mm -hmm. so you're never going to have to say in the game well i'm a rogue lurker thief skulker rogue so i, I just don't yeah. think it doesn't make any difference it, I, to me, I, I i see both sides yeah and, and I, I do as well but i just think again be more of the kind of immersive role player that i am 
I think that's a that's a problem that's easily ignored and it doesn't take away from the game. So I'm a big fan of character creation. I'm a big fan of how it works. Now, one thing I'm not a fan of is the ability score adjustments. One of the things that if you play a, a non-human, you get all these kind of cool perks. You know, dwarves are resistant to poison and elves don't have to sleep and halflings get bonuses to this and that. So as a way to kind of compensate and make humans on equal ground, they get a ridiculous, in my opinion, ridiculous amount of, of attribute adjustments. Basically, once you roll your stats, if you're an elf, you probably get like a plus two to dex, I think. I was a human, wasn't I? Yes. So if you're a human and in the, in the, you go by the game, you get a plus one to everything and then another plus one, actually I think it's a plus two to something else. And then once you pick your class, that might give you an additional adjustment. Are these stats or skills? Stats. Okay. So the way it works out is that humans overall across all the averages will have better scores in every stat than any other race. Okay. So if you take that to the extreme, that the most dexterous human will be more dexterous than the most de dexterous elf. Mm -hmm. To me, that doesn't make sense. So what I would rather them do is that the, the demi-humans, I guess what they're called, sub-races, you know, whatever, they might have fewer overall adjustments, but they have a higher maximum. So you could have an elf with a 20 dexterity where a human can never get above 18. So it still shows that the most dexterous human is not as dexterous as the most dexterous elf. Well, instead of giving the human, uh, the human race the, all the bonuses to their stats, what about why did they leave out the human race as having the cool perks or special abilities and things like that and choose to give them the stat bonuses. Well, I think part of that was, again, kind of harkening back to that old game style and, and trying to change some things up. Like, for example, in 3.5 and 3.0, humans, the thing that, that they got as a bonus, because humans traditionally in the fantasy novels and, and uh, genre is that they're the most diverse race. They have the ability to thrive in the most, you know, most number of different types of elements and climates, and they can spread and they can populate. And they have shorter lifespans, so usually they're more aggressive and they're just trying to, you know, their, their candle burns bright. But so, short. like, if you say, where do the elves live, you would say, well, they live in the forest. Yes. Or where do the dwarves live? Well, they, they live, live in the caves. Caves. But humans, humans are everywhere. Where, yeah. So you want to kind of sort of, sort of mechanically show that uh, humans were given additional skill points because so, they had a more diverse range of skills and abilities and knowledges. And then they also got an extra feat which the feats kind of exist in D&D Next, but they're not called that. They're more of like a trait that you get through a background or specialty. So when you played a human, you got additional skills and you got an additional feat to start the game to compensate for the fact that you don't get resist poison or you do have to sleep or you don't get all these other magical adjustments for playing these other races. And it's just designed to try to keep them balanced so that, you know, if you were playing a very hardcore mechanical game, like a combat simulation game, probably no one would play humans if they didn't do something to put them on equal footing because you're already at a mathematical disadvantage by playing a human unless they find a way to compensate. So with your thinking, would you always play a human no matter what you were, no matter what class you were going to do? So that because you could, you would have that higher stats that are going to contribute to more powerful Abilities. If you're a min-maxer, there's probably an argument to be made that humans are now the more powerful race compared to some of the others. And me, I pick my, my class and race based more on what I feel like playing that at that time. I'm not saying I don't – I would never intentionally sure. just screw uh, yeah. up my, my math to, to make it harder, but I'm not necessarily But if you're going into it thinking, I'm going to play a fighter, and I absolutely – want my strength to be as high as it can possibly be then gonna... technically a human would be the best way to go compared mm -hmm. to like a dwarf which but if you're not that concerned about it and you're just like i'll take whatever i get is what i get and i'll be and i'll role play it as is then right it wouldn't make that so much difference. That, that's one of the big things that i would like to see them change is a little bit is how that's that, how that's done now another thing that only came up a little bit because we only had one combat in the entire dnd next playtest we played it for about six hours we only had one combat really the combat and that was very early. Like that was one of the first things we did, and I did that intentionally in the game. I design. loved it so much that I wish we would have had another one. I tried. Story wise, you guys made choices that probably made sense, but I, I tried to have a battle there. But but I wanted. I was to, never bored with the rest of the story. No, I thought everybody had a, a, mm -hmm. a lot of fun, and I, I want to kind of get back into how that battle contributed to that. But what I was saying is, we only had the one battle, so 
the healing mechanic only came up the one time. And so in D&D Next, it's sort of similar to fourth edition where you have healing surges, but they're called something else. They're basically called hit dice. Each race, or excuse me, each class has one based on level. As a rogue, yours is a D6. So a fourth level rogue, you had four D6 of hit dice. And the way they work is once you're out of combat or you're in a position where you can do what's called a short rest, then you can roll one of your D6, add that back to your hit points. Then you can choose to do it again, 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 until all of them are gone or until you're fully healed or, or wherever you decide to stop. So what I did was like, my hit points was a 35 were a 35 max i got hit i took damage somewhere i got hit somewhere and when i finished combat i was at 29 so i rolled 1d6 and i rolled like a 4 which put me back at 33 so thinking i could if i roll another d6 i could easily roll a 3 4 5 or 6 which would be a waste of a roll cuz i'd rather go down and then get those because Later. if I roll a six, I have to stop at thirty-five. I only get two hit points back out of that right. six. So it was, it was, even though you weren't at full, mathematically, it made sense to hold on to it mm-hmm. till later. And, and I liked that, and, and I think that's fine. That's actually one of the things that I have changed my opinion about Fourth Edition on with the D and D next playtest. One of my frustrations is I thought it was too easy in Fourth Edition to get back up to full health. Um, with just so many different ways to use healing surges, so many different ways to heal, whether you had a cleric or not. And I kind of enjoy certain elements of a game when you're weak and you're trying to heal, it adds an additional element of, of stress to situations where you can't rest and you're constantly having to go from encounter to encounter. It, it just, it's just another level of tension. But at the same time, we've experienced that in my 3.5 game because right now there are no clerics. Basically, the world doesn't have any. So you guys, when you're getting hurt, it's taking a lot of time to heal up. And the benefit that I get is trying to tell a more gritty story, I don't think is equally compensated with just having you guys able to go back and do something else. So I do, I've kind of switched my opinion now where I think it's okay to get you guys back to full a little bit quicker so that the game can kind of discontinue with a better flow. So I think hit dice are cool. They're not necessarily the greatest thing in the world. They're not like healing surges exactly, but there's an element to it. And then the other thing, again, which is similar to fourth edition, is if you take a full rest or an extended rest, I'm not sure which terminology to use, then everything goes back to maximum. So like you had 35 yeah, hit you points, dice back too. you could be at one hit point, you go take your full rest, you're back to 35 hit points, and you're back to full healing surges. So basically every eight hours, it's a complete reset button. To me, that might be too much. I almost feel like if you're almost dead, I just don't know if I like you being able to wake up the next day being fully healed. But for the sake of the game, it probably makes the most sense. The way the way I kind of think about it is, based on your class, you have because your your hit dice are based on your class and race, or just your class or just your race. It's uh, class. Okay, so based on your class, they say they they're saying that that would determine your knowledge of like your knowledge of immediate uh like basic life saving or basic life support or basic life care like healing it, it's, so, it's not it's not really tied that way it's more tied to uh training and kind of your constitution uh, your fortitude that that you're just so used to getting hit that you're able to compensate for that okay i think i mean it's an abstract number so whatever in the in the game itself you can make it be whatever you want it to be. So mm-hmm. if, if that makes it better for you that you think about, well, because I'm a rogue, I'm used to attacking with backstab. I know anatomy. And so I'm better able to heal myself Then that, you know, that's fine. There, there's nothing. I, I wouldn't say, no, you're wrong. If that's what you're trying to role play. And that's why it made sense for you. So I've kind of changed my, my, my opinion on that. And then I want to, I want to talk one more thing about mechanical stuff. And then I want to get to specifics about our game last night. So one of the other changes that we didn't discuss because there were no mages or any sort of arcane spellcasters in, in my game, and I, you and I have talked about this before, the whole Van Cien type of magic versus fourth edition at wills, dailies, utilities, that type of thing, and kind of where I come down. I don't really care. Spell slots for me are fine, but I understand that some people don't like them. And I think that's been one of the biggest struggles for the D&D Next playtest designers or game designers is how do you get a system that the people who hate old school magic and the people who love old school magic 
can both play in the same game and be balanced and be fun for everybody. And so what they originally did, the first thing they did is, well, okay, well, we'll have a wizard is our base magic using class and they'll use the old school slots. But then we'll also create a warlock who uses more of a system, I can't remember what it's called right now, but it uses basically a different magical system. And then we have a sorcerer that uses a third different type of spell system. So you basically just pick the class that provides magic the way you want, and you could always call it a wizard. You could play a warlock mechanically, but if somebody says in game, who are you? I am Wizard Vancean. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. You know, It's all fluff. But it still didn't work exactly right. And so the thing that they've changed, which I just – it's one of those, to me, it's like, it's such a great, it's like solving a riddle. As soon as someone tells you the answer, you're like, oh, of course, that makes so much sense. But until you see it, it's hard to, to fathom. And what they did is they took the magic disciplines away from the PCs and put them in the hands of the DM. So what that means is the DM, as they're creating their world or they're using a world that's you know, like a, a setting like Eberron, that determines how magic is used in that world. So you could have a story element and say, well, there are some people who are like sorcerers who use a very wild and untamed version of magic, almost like the force in Star Wars, but it's dangerous and seductive and it's not necessarily more powerful, but it's easier. And then you have these other people who are very intellectual, cautious, and they use spell slots and they know that it's not quite as effective. It's not quite as powerful, but it's more assured that nothing bad will happen. And it's, it's a very measured and reasoned approach. And so the DM and the PC would con- collaborate to determine what type of magic your character uses based on your. If you were like a barbarian shamanistic tribe, you would probably play something closer to a sorcerer and, and, and incorporate some sort of elemental or forest deity type of power that grants you your abilities. If you went to a magical school and you're a very like a ed, ed, um, intellectual version, you probably use spell slots. And it, I just think it makes it so much sense that the DM builds the world and says, this is how magic works in my world based on the story I'm telling. And so that's the magic you're going to use. I don't know. To me, it was just sort of like an aha eureka moment. That just makes so much sense. And as a DM, because if I'm creating a world. I don't have any experience playing right, a wizard. Right. So I want to say as, as Michael loves that idea, I think it's great. All right. So let's talk about specifically about the game last night and some things that what we thought went well and even some things that could have went better. First. Okay, we're not going to do that. What about the how what about how um skill checks work? Okay. Because um I can't rem- I don't really remember if we did it that much, but the the explain real quick how they changed the way you set DCs or, or they're permanently okay. set for skill checks. Right. So one of the things they talked about doing, which is another thing I'm a big fan of is what they're called bounded accuracy. And what that means is, for example, in fourth edition, as you leveled, you automatically got better at things. So like every, every two levels, you automatically got a plus one at basically everything. So a seventh level or excuse me, an eighth level character was plus four, to everything in addition to any abilities, any skills, any training, any talents. So the game kind of had this curve difficulty that had to continuously rise or eventually you get to the point where you were so powerful that the game stopped being fun. Whereas as the players level, their the challenges level, their scores for, for, or their, their, uh, their roles or their scores for skill checks is going to continue to get so much higher, but you don't want, you don't want them to automatically succeed at everything. At everything. So your DC keeps getting higher. Keeps getting higher, bound, higher, and higher. Which is, when you think about it now, it's kind of, to me, that is kind of like that Eureka aha moment, moment where it's like, either way you do it, it's the same. It right. doesn't make any sense. So to, there's no point in even gonna, leveling, really. There, right. There's no point in raising this number and raising this number if they're always going to stay the e- same. balanced. You might as well just keep them here and not right. do anything with them. So what they've done here, they that bounded accuracy where the math stays a lot flatter. And realistically, you could play the entire game with three numbers. DC 12 for easy things, DC 15 for hard things, and DC 18 for very difficult things. And it really doesn't change. So no matter how powerful you get, if you want to go kick down a door that's a standard wooden door like in a, a shop owner would have, like in that encounter you had, the DC probably would be between 12 and 15. If you came back in 10 years and you're on 18th level warrior, it's still going to be 10 to 15, 
because that door didn't get any more powerful just because you did. Right. If I want to make that a more challenging door for you, well, now it's magical and there's a ward on it and that's what keeps it difficulty. But you're not going to run into that in that herbalist shop on the street. But if you're now you're going into this magical tower to take down the lich, that does make sense for it now to be like a 20. So has character leveling and applying bonuses and and getting more points to add to skills that's different now too it still happens but it's a much smaller differentiation Uh, so their way to compensate is that advantage disadvantage mechanic so rather than every level or every two level you get plus one plus one plus one you just utilize the advantage mechanic either you have different ways to give you advantage or you as a role player find ways to get advantage so you get to roll two die and take the better result which kind of compensates for not necessarily having that mathematical advantage over time see i think that that the, i think that them doing that is a really good thing for new players and new dms because i'm a new dm and in my game whenever you want to do something because a lot of times um you ask if you can do something out of the ordinary and i'll say and i as a new dm and your experience but you're you're i'm the dm and you're a player but i'll still ask over the table like well, how should I do that? You know, <laughs> and it's, there's this weird moment where you're, you're asking the me if I can do what I just said, can <laughs> yes, I do it? But your response is uh, the first way your response always goes usually is, well, first you set the number, you decide how hard it's going to be. And I never know what, to what do. to do. I never know how hard it should be. I never know what the number should be. So f- as a new DM, I really like that. It's just black and white. And this is easy, this is medium, and this is hard. And it's always going to be there. Right. You don't have to do a bunch of math. You don't have to think about a bunch of stuff. Like That's just the way so, it is. So it actually ties into the, the last thing I want to talk about. I, almost, I can't believe I almost forgot. They've changed magic to a way that I love. It makes it so much. It, basically, they created the magic system that I've always tried to have in my own games where magic isn't everywhere. It just doesn't exist where you just find magical stuff in every random chest that you open. So because they've done bounded accuracy and because they've kind of leveled out the math, you're not expected to get magic items. So in like in fourth edition, for example, and again, I'm not trying to, to dog it. There's things about fourth edition I really like. There's things about it I don't. But one of the things I didn't like is that you pretty much had to get magic items or you would get behind the curve. Like you basically, there's a, probably a chart somewhere that you could say, okay, at fifth level, you should have this many magic items at this much power. And if you didn't get those items, so if you wanted to play in a world that had low magic, then you were not as powerful as the game thought you were. The DM, you could always compensate. You know, if you're supposed to fight a DC or a challenge rating 10 monster, I might make it a challenge rating 7 to compensate for the fact that you don't have magic. But I have to make that decision as a DM. So the way they've changed it now is having a magic item means something because you're not in, it's not expected or not required that you do. So if you actually have a magic item, it is a significant bonus to your character and will continue to be a significant bonus throughout the course of your career. So having like a plus two sword is a huge advantage for a 10th level character, the same as it would be for a first level character. Well, that seems like, I mean, changing the way ability scores work seems like a more, seems like a concrete thing that, in home game, homebrew games or whatever, you're not gonna. If you're playing D D next, you're not really gonna mess with. But that doesn't the way the magic system and the way magic items work. I mean, is that really gonna change people who want to who like games or play games with a lot of magic? I mean, they're just just gonna throw out as many magic but, items and, into their world as they want and, to. And you still have that option. I, I guess the part that I really like is that the game doesn't uh, require or expect that you will get so many magic items. So that as a DM, you can make them more important in, in like a bigger world. The other thing they did, I, I'll quickly talk about, is called a, attunement. And I've used this mechanic in the past, but I never really called it that, so I don't know where it comes from. But So, for example, you might get a magic weapon, first level, hereditary, your grandfather passed it down, whatever. So you start with this magic weapon. It's cool. You're, you're a hero. Great. A ladle. Yes, a, the ladle of death striking. And you might have this sword for maybe two or three levels. You're using ladle. it. This ladle, everything's working great. And then one day, you happen to kill an ogre with it. And suddenly, you're filled with this sort of power, and there's almost like a, a, a voice speaking in your head that this is what that ladle was made for. It was made to kill ogres. So you go out and you find another ogre and kill it, 
and now that ladle becomes a plus three sword. You go out and you kill four more ogres, now it becomes a plus four sword. So the more that you use what the weapon was designed for, the more powerful it gets, which in a campaign translate to, as you get more powerful, the weapon gets more powerful. So I know Mike Merles had a quote, give somebody a, a sword at plus one that really breaks bad when they kill five dragons with it. So now you've taken a magic item, and rather than it just being, here's your, your required plus two bonuses level, this is now something for your character to build off of, and it's like a, um, a motivation. My character needs to go kill dragons because this sort of legend will become, you know, what I need it to be to fight the great super dragon at the end of the adventure rather than just being here's your plus two bonus. It's this is now a campaign artifact. It's a motivation. It's a story builder. And I love that idea more yeah. than anything else. It makes more sense and to just create the feeling that it, something is more important. It's not just something <coughs> that, that can be added. It. It, instead of just adding things to and throw and taking things away, just throwing them out of the game, forgetting about them. Well, I'm just going to put down this plus one sword for this plus two sword. You be, have an attachment to an item, that, right. which would, in my thinking about my rogue and the and I had a dagger that was a that was like a dagger of flame or fire or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, that would increase my role playing with that dagger and make it part of my role playing. And you game. wouldn't just want to drop it as soon as there's another plus three dagger floating around because that, that becomes part of your mm-hmm. character. You know, you could very well become known as the rogue with the flame sword. It's almost like your moniker. And it just, I think it becomes more of a character element role playing than just a mechanical bonus. So I'm a huge fan of that. All right. So we've already been talking for a long time. So let's jump into some specific things that happened in the game last night. And I want to talk to start off with about the battle how that kind of went for you, what you liked, what you didn't like. And then I want to talk a little bit about how I think that influenced the rest of the game. Well, that ends our general discussion of D&D Next. Um, next, you can go to the podcast titled D&D Next Playtest. That's about a 45 or 50-minute podcast where we recorded our um, we recorded our encounter that Michael ran using the D&D Next Playtest. Uh, after that, you can listen to D&D Next Post Session, and that's us picking this conversation back up and talking basically specifically about uh, the D&D Next playtest. So thanks, everybody, for listening, and I'll see you next time.